Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, I'd like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to uh, everyone uh, for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, uh, you can listen to any one or all of our prior 65 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms on our uh, Surety Today page, on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite at uh, suretytoday.net. As always, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise. We will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Before we get started, uh, I wanted to wish everyone a very happy and merry holiday season uh, to you and your families, and I hope that everyone will have a, a safe and prosperous new year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we, we've got surges, we've got the Omicron, you know, coming at us, whatever. Put all that aside and really try to enjoy the season. Today, we'll be providing a surety case law update. We tend to do these case law updates uh, about once every six months. Our last one was in June, so we're due. Uh, the way we do our updates is we review the SFAA case reports uh, for that time period after the last time we did it, and we, uh, we select cases to talk about from that group. In the past, uh, pre-COVID, there was always a very large number of cases, but uh, post-COVID, it hasn't been the case so far. I guess the courts are still working through backlogs and whatnot. Um, so in this case law update, we'll, we'll discuss such topics as email notice under the Maryland Little Miller Act, using the terms of the underlying subcontract when evaluating claims, when is the statute of limitations triggered under the Florida Little Miller Act, and the Miller Act in general, and the interplay between the terms of the underlying contract and the terms of the bond. Also, there's a case in here on bad faith in Alabama. So we'll hopefully get to all of these. So the first case we want to talk about is Johnson Lancaster and Associates, Inc. versus HMC, Inc., and that's out of the, uh, the District of Maryland uh, from this year. This is, the, this is the email case. So this case involves the question of the sufficiency of the manner of providing notice under Maryland's uh, Little Miller Act. Uh, the issues are, are pretty straightforward and, the, and the, the facts are straightforward. So uh, we start with the, the Prince George's County, Maryland, entered into a contract with Rich Moe Enterprises, RME, to serve as a general contractor for the renovation of the Prince George's County Courthouse Cafeteria. Pursuant to the provisions of the Maryland Little Miller Act, RME was required to provide payment of performance bonds, and Hudson Insurance Company provided those bonds. Um, and RME entered into a subcontract for a portion of the work with HMC, Inc. HMC, in turn, entered into a subcontract with Johnson Lancaster Associates to supply food service equipment for the cafeteria upgrade. Johnson provided the equipment but was not paid in full. 
Johnson made several demands for payment upon HMC, but no payment was forthcoming. Finally, Johnson sent an email to RME, uh, the principal, the general contractor, as notice of HMC's failure to make payment. The email identified the project, the subcontractor who failed to pay, the current balance due to the plaintiff, and included documents supporting the unpaid balance. In this email to RME, plaintiff also requested a copy of the bond. After receiving a copy of the bond, plaintiff uh, sent an email notice to Hudson asserting a claim against the bond. Hudson provided its claim form, and that was subsequently completed and returned along with supporting documents. Uh, However, Hudson Hudson did not pay the claim. The Little Miller Act states that a notice under the statute must state with substantial accuracy the amount claimed and the person to whom the labor or material was supplied, and, quote, shall be sent by certified mail to the contractor at the contractor's residence or a place where the contractor has an office or does business, unquote. Now, it was undisputed in this case that Johnson only provided notice by email. After Johnson filed suit, Hudson moved for summary judgment, contending that because Johnson failed to comply with the certified mail service requirements set forth in the Little Miller Act, its claim under the bond was defective as a matter of law. The court began its analysis by noting that the main purpose of the Little Miller Act was to provide greater protection to subcontractors, but also noticed that also noted that the notice requirement of the act uh, are designed to protect the general contractor. Johnson contended that, the, and the court agreed, that the case law demonstrates, quote, reviewing courts will accept written notice as sufficient if the substance of the notice of the bond claim complies with the Little Miller Act, there was actual notice to the contractor, and there is no prejudice to the contractor based on service by a method other than certified mail, unquote. And the court cited to a couple of cases there. The court pointed to the earlier case of State Roads Commissions versus Conti Sand and Gravel uh, out of the federal court here in Maryland, in which the Maryland federal court determined that written notice of a bond claim by regular mail was sufficient. In the Conti case, a sub-subcontractor sent notice of a bond claim by certified mail to the surety, but by regular mail to the uh, principal. So the court held that because the notice received by the surety was sent by certified mail and the defendant, the contractor, received sufficient notice, and and because the Little Miller Act should be uh, liberally construed to aid in its remedial purpose, that uh, service by regular mail as opposed to certified mail was okay in that case. The court in this case noted that um, its case was different than Conti because here RME never sent notice to Hudson uh, or the, uh, uh, the principal by regular mail or certified mail. Plaintiff only sent its notice by email. But the court noted that, quote, while a liberal construction is not one that contravenes the plain language of the statute, this court must still look to the purpose of the statute to determine whether email is is a sufficient means of delivery, unquote. The court stated in this case, a liberal construction of the means of delivery does not contravene the remedial purpose of the statute because the purpose of certified mail is to ensure receipt of the claim. In this case, receipt of the claim was ensured by email, which provided a digital history of delivery. The court cited to the case of Fleischer Engineering and Construction versus uh, U.S. for the Benefit of Hallenbach, a, a, a 1940 Supreme Court case, in which the Supreme Court um, stated, quote, in giving a reasonable construction in order to affect its remedial purpose, we think that a distinction should be drawn between the provision 
explicitly stating the condition precedent to the right to sue and the provision as to the manner of serving notice, unquote. And the court was talking about either the, the original Miller Act or maybe even the old Heard Act. It uh, wasn't clear. Regarding the manner of service, the court in Fleischer Engineering held that Congress intended to provide a method which would afford sufficient proof of service. The court in Conti applied the same logic, and although notice was sent by ordinary mail, where it was otherwise sufficient and actually reached one of the two joint and several contractors, the act should be liberally construed in aid of its remedial purpose. So in the present case, the court concluded that there was no challenge to the sufficiency of the notice. Uh, there was no Maryland authority directly on point. Um, the court stated that to grant summary judgment would simply provide an unjust windfall to Hudson, who has also failed to allege any prejudice in the emailed notice, and most importantly, would thwart the purpose of the Little Miller Act. The content of the email notice was not at issue. The timeliness of the notice was not at issue. Even the receipt of the email notice was not at issue. Hudson admittedly uh, timely received the email uh, and plaintiff's claim. The purpose of the certified mail, the court continued, is to protect the parties. The court held that the purpose of the statute is fully met because sufficient proof of service and receipt of that service was shown. I think that there probably are courts in other jurisdictions that would not have come down this way on this issue, but the concept of actual notice controlling over the formalities uh, is a concept that that um, that one has to be aware of, and particularly with the liberal construction factor under the under the Miller Act. So the next case is JD's Asphalt Engineering Corp versus Arch Insurance Company, and that's a case out of the Florida District Court from October of this year. Uh, in this case, Arch Insurance Company issued a payment and performance bonds for the general contractor on a construction project for the Miami-Dade County School District. The general contractor entered into a subcontract with JD's Asphalt Engineering Corp. The claimant then sued uh, on the payment bond seeking recovery of retainage and payment for change orders. Arch moved for summary judgment on the claim for the change orders and the trial court granted that motion. Uh, denying the claimant's claim because uh, the contract expressly required all change orders to be in writing and signed. However, the evidence revealed that the change orders upon which uh, the claim was based were unsigned and uh, unauthorized. The appellate court found no genuine issue of material fact and, and affirmed that Arch was entitled to summary judgment. Apparently, there was factual disputes that prevented uh, summary judgment on the claim for the retainage and so a two-day bench trial was conducted. The issue in the trial was whether the, the claim was barred by the statute of limitations. The Florida statute provides that an action for recovery of retainage must be instituted against the contractor or the surety within one year after the performance of the labor or completion of delivery of materials or supplies. After conducting the trial, the trial court concluded that the claim for retainage was barred by limitations because the suit was not filed within one year of the claimant's completion of its subcontract work. In fact, the suit was filed on July 19th of 2017. Court found that the claimant had completed performance of the, of the work on August 11th of 2015, and that the architect had certified the project to be substantially complete on August 22nd of 2015. So you had almost two years there. The claimant, however, contended that it provided additional labor and material during a July to October 2016 time period. Court ruled that any such work was de minimis punch list work 
and not the type of labor that would extend the one-year limitations period. Florida's fifth appellate district, where this case was pending, applies the so-called, quote-unquote, substantial trivial test to determine the last date a claimant performed labor. However, it appears that Florida has a bit of a mess on this issue. The substantial trivia test is used by the fifth district, has not been adopted by the fourth district, which applies the so-called Aronson-Mcnall test. The Aronson-Mcnall test is a four-factor test to be applied in determining whether particular work constitutes the final furnishing of labor and looks to whether the work done was, quote, was one, in good faith, two, within a reasonable time period, three, in pursuance of the terms of the contract, four, necessary to a finished job. Now, I'm not a Florida law expert, so if you've got an issue in Florida relating to when the Little Miller Act limitations period is triggered, please seek competent counsel in Florida. I can only identify that there may be disputes between the districts in Florida uh, on this issue. But the case raises the, the two interesting aspects. The first, of course, is that surety claims handlers must be aware of the terms of the underlying subcontract when evaluating claims because the underlying subcontract terms can provide defenses against claims or even potentially add additional liability. In the J.D.'s Asphalt case, of course, the change orders were required to be written and signed, and because they were not, the claim could not be sustained. Now, I recommend you check out our uh, Surety Today episode from December 14, 2020, titled The Effect of an Incorporation by Reference Provision in the Bond for a discussion of the, of the issues of terms in the underlying contract. We'll also talk about this issue in another case in a little bit um, where that also came up. The second issue for the surety claims handlers to be aware of in this case is that when evaluating whether the statute of limitations has been met, not all work performed by the claimant may count for limitation purposes. As I noted, the, the Florida Little Miller Act has multiple tests for addressing the issue depending on what part of Florida you're in. Uh, the same is true with respect to the Federal Miller Act. As a general matter, the, the federal courts have taken a variety of approaches in determining when the statute of limitations uh, begins to run on the claim uh, under the Miller Act. The majority of courts have followed that uh, only work performed and material supplied as part of the original contract as opposed to corrective or repair work performed after final inspection and not provided for in the contract fall within the meaning of labor and materials for purposes of the statute of limitations. This test is sometimes referred to as the correction or repair versus original contract test. The second test is the substantial completion rule under which the statute of limitations begins to run whenever applicable contract law would deem substantial completion to have occurred. Courts applying the substantial completion rule hold that the statute of limitations continues to run on a subcontractor's Miller Act claim even when insubstantial subcontract requirements have not yet been completed. The court applied a multi-factor test uh, considering the value of the materials, the original contract specs, the unexpected nature of the work, and the importance of the material to the operation of the system in which they are used. Uh, they, they, they look at these factors to determine if the date on which the materials of labor were provided should be the date when the limitations period begins to run. Uh, another court out of the District of uh, D.C. Has, um, has created a fourth fact test, which basically is sort of a substantial or a, rather a strict uh, construction test based on just what the Miller Act requires and looking at the contract, you know, did, did the contractor do the work? When was the last time they did any of that work? And that's how you determine when the limitations begins to run. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different tests out there, and you, and you just have to be aware of this when you're looking at limitations issues. 
So the next case is Old House Specialist LLC versus Guarantee Insurance of North America USA. This is out of the Middle District of Alabama uh, from this year. This case arises from a dispute over a payment bond claim. Uh, Old House uh, was a subcontractor to the principal on a construction project located in Montgomery, Alabama. Old House contends it was not paid in full and asserted the payment bond claim against Guarantee Insurance of North America USA. Guarantee did not pay the claim. Old House filed suit and asserted a bad faith claim for allegedly intentionally refusing to pay its claim and sought compensatory and punitive damages. Guarantee filed a motion to dismiss the bad faith claim. Guarantee argued in its motion Alabama law does not recognize the tort of bad faith in the context of a payment bond claim. Guarantee reasoned that under Alabama law, the tort of bad faith is recognized in the limited context of typical insurance contracts. And because a payment bond is not an insurance contract, it cannot be held liable for bad faith in denying the old house claim. Court noted that Alabama state courts had yet to address uh, this issue. So the Alabama code defines insurance as, quote, a contract whereby one undertakes to indemnify another or, or pay or provide a specified amount or benefit upon determinable contingencies. Similarly, the Alabama Supreme Court has characterized insurance as a contract by which one party for a compensation called the premium assumes particular risks of the other party and promises to pay him or his nominee a certain or ascertainable sum of money on a specified contingency, unquote. While any number of contracts could technically fall within the purview of these definitions, the Alabama Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected the application of the tort of bad faith outside of the typical insurer-insured relationship, i.e. where the insured or his employer entered into a written contract of insurance with an insurer and premiums are paid into a central fund out of which claims are to be paid. So, for example, the Alabama Supreme Court has declined to recognize bad faith claims against defendants who are not insurers. Even when the defendant is an insurer, the court has denied a bad faith claim in a suit between a primary and an excess insurer. Moreover, e even where there was an insurance contract, the Alabama Supreme Court refused to extend the tort of bad faith to third-party beneficiaries of an insurance contract, citing Williams versus State Farm Mutual Auto Insurance Company uh, 886 Southern 2nd, uh, 7576, an Alabama case from 2003. In that case, uh, the court held that a party cannot bring an action against an insurance company for bad faith failure to pay an insurance claim if the party does not have a direct contractual relationship with the insurance company. Of course, in this case, we're dealing with a, with a payment bond claim, so there was no direct contract between the claimant and the surety. The court noted that a, a payment bond does not resemble a typical insurance contract and that suretyship is not insurance, citing the Perlman versus Reliance case. The court also noted that several other district courts within that circuit have found uh, the same result and had thus concluded that the Alabama Supreme Court would not extend the tort of bad faith to suretyship. The court stated, quote, thus, regardless of whether a payment bond falls within the technical definition of insurance under Alabama law, the court agrees that a payment bond is not a typical insurance contract. The Alabama Supreme Court's reluctance to extend the tort of bad faith outside the typical insurance context then advises against extending the tort of bad faith to a payment bond claim. The court concludes that this weighs against finding that the tort of bad faith applies to a bond at issue in this case. The court further observed that because of the inherent differences between a typical insurance contract 
and a payment bond, the policy considerations behind recognizing the tort of bad faith do not exist in the context of a payment bond. First, a typical insurance contract involves two parties, the insurer and the insured. Suretyship, on the other hand, creates a tripartite relationship between and among the party secured, the obligee, the principal, the, the, the contractor, and the party secondarily liable, the surety. A surety bond compensates for losses sustained by an obligee as a result of the principal's failure to perform its contractual or statutory obligations to the obligee. Under this arrangement, a surety company has a contractual relationship with both the principal and the obligee, and this presents a dilemma for the surety's potential liability to one party or the other that is not present in typical insurance contracts. Second, in a, in a payment bond, a non-party uh, to the bond makes the claim against the surety. Importantly, a subcontractor under a payment bond is not a party to the surety contract. Instead, it is more akin to a third-party beneficiary of the agreement between the surety, the obligee, and the principal. As the third-party beneficiary, the subcontractor does not engage in negotiation of the payment bond. Finally, unlike the parties in a typical insurance contract, the parties to a payment bond are usually commercial enterprises because commercial enterprises possess relatively equal bargaining power, there's no need to restore balance in the contractual relationship between them by extending the tort of bad faith. So this case, while talking about Alabama law, does provide a good walkthrough of the distinctions between insurance and suretyship. In fact, I'm, I'm considering doing a, one of these episodes in, next year on the, on the issue of the differences between insurance and suretyship um, just to have as a, as a resource for everybody, you know, because there's a lot of cases that talk about it. There's a lot of um, different factors that courts have looked to. It'd be nice to have them all in one place. So uh, look for that. Um, the next case is Iron Branch Associates LP versus the Hartford Fire Insurance Company. This is out of the District of Delaware from September of this year. Iron Branch Associates owned the village at Iron Branch, a housing development ministered by HUD and the uh, Delaware Housing Authority. In, in June uh, 2017, Iron Branch hired um, Petricon Construction, Inc. to renegade, renovate the village for a total contract price of $4.7 million. Hartford provided the performance of payment bonds for Petricon. The performance bond incorporated the construction contract, and the performance bond provided that Hartford's responsibilities to Iron Branch were the same as Petricon's to Iron Branch, and that Hartford had exposure to pay additional damages for legal design professional and delay costs resulting from Petricon's default and, and liquidated damages, or if none, actual damages. Pursuant to the um, bond, Hartford was only liable for the damages for which Petricon would be liable. Iron Branch declared Petricon in default and subsequently terminated the bonded contract. Iron Branch then notified Hartford of the termination and made demand. In response, Hartford chose to fulfill its security obligations by tendering a completion contractor to complete the renovations. Hartford also paid Iron Branch the difference in the construction contract balance and the tender price, which was about $438,000, uh, as well as certain other additional costs incurred by Iron Branch due to the default, totaling about $72,000. In the tender agreement, Iron Branch released Hartford from its obligations under the performance bond, but reserved the right to recover certain damages under the performance bond. Hartford on the other hand, reserved all rights and defenses that it had relating to the bond or the default uh, in the tender agreement. Iron Brand subsequently asserted a claim for additional damages in the amount of $1.8 million. 
uh, under the performance bond. Iron Branch based its new demand on alleged lost rental income, costs for relocation of tenants, subcontractor consulting and legal costs, Iron Branch's project management time costs, and extended financing costs, and lost tax credit costs. Hartford denied Iron Branch's claim, arguing that under the performance bond, Hartford's liability could not be greater than Petricon's under the construction contract. Hartford pointed out that in the construction contract, um, both Iron Branch and Petricon had agreed to waive consequential damages. The waiver of com com consequential damages provided that, um, that it included damages incurred by Iron Branch for rental expenses, for losses of use, income, profit, financing, business, and reputation, and for loss of management or employee productivity or, um, or of the services of such persons, and two, damages incurred by Iron Branch for principal office expenses, including the compensation of personnel stationed there, for losses of financing, business and reputation, and for loss of profit, except anticipated profit arising directly from the work. So basically, a broad waiver of consequential damages, including um, without limitations, all consequential damages due to either party's termination. So it was a pretty broad provision. Iron Branch then sued Hartford for breach of contract and for a declaratory judgment. The parties filed cross motions for summary judgment. Iron Branch argued that it may recover damages from Hartford despite its waiver of consequential damages in the construction contract because the construction contract's general incorporation by reference into the bond was insufficient to overcome the performance bond's express grant of damages that Hartford could be liable for. The bond stated, this was the A312, the, the bond stated that Hartford would be responsible for specifically enumerated damages, including the responsibilities of the contractor for correction of defective work and completion of the project, additional legal design, professional, and delay costs resulting from the contractor's default and resulting from the actions or failure to act of the surety, and liquidated damages, or if no liquidated damages were specified in the contract, actual damages caused by delayed performance or non-performance of the contractor. Now, under De Delaware law, when the bond is expressly incorporated into the construction contract by reference, as was the case here, both the performance bond and the construction bond, uh, a contract rather, must be read together to ascertain the intent of the parties. As it relates to Hartford's obligations, the parties agreed uh, in the performance bond that Hartford's obligations to Iron Branch were coextensive with the obligations of Petricon under the construction contract, and that the responsibilities of the surety to Iron Branch would not be greater than those of the, of the contractor under the construction contract. The court held that because Iron Branch waived claims for all consequential damages against Petricon, as well as the damages specifically enumerated in the waiver, Hartford is also not liable to Iron Branch for consequential damages or those specifically waived under the express terms of the performance bond. The court did not agree with Iron Branch's argument that Hartford had increased its liability in the bond. The court noted that it did not dispute that a surety may expand or limit its obligations under the terms of a bond, but the court held that while the performance bond allows for the enumerated damages, it only does so to the extent Petricon would be liable to Iron Branch under the construction contract. And so what the court you know, was grappling with here is the, the sort of general interpretation of contracts, reading the bond and the contract together and also the overlay of the common law that 
concept that the surety liability is no greater than that of the, of the bonded principal. And so it came to the conclusion that even though the bond has this list of potential damages for the surety, that that list was limited by the bonded principal's liability or exposure under the contract. So that's uh, a good case for that issue. If that issue comes up, I think, quite a lot. Iron Branch further argued that um, the contract's incorporation uh, into the bond only defines performance obligations and has no relation to liabilities, such as the claims it was seeking. The court rejected this contention as being against persuasive authority. The court also noted that Iron Branch's interpretation contradicted the common law principle that a surety's liability is coextensive with its principle, as well as the plain language of the performance bond, which express, expressly provided that, quote, the responsibilities of the surety to the owner shall not be greater than those of the contractor on the construction contract, and the responsibilities of the owner to the surety shall not be greater than those of the owner under the construction contract, unquote. The court noted that the term responsibilities in the performance bond encompasses liabilities. Now, although you had this waiver of, uh, of consequential damages, the court still undertook an analysis then of the damages that, um, that um, Iron Branch was seeking and, and, and did the analysis to determine whether each of those were specifically waived by the waiver provision or whether they constituted consequential damages or direct damages. And the court went through um, each of those damage items and with some of them it, it found that there were disputes of fact and it could not grant summary judgment. Others were clearly barred by the waiver. Um, and so there's a good discussion there about, you know, what is and what is not the consequential damages versus direct damages, at least under uh, Delaware law. But this case was pretty well, well written. Uh, there was a lot of analysis. The court referred to a lot of cases in other jurisdictions. So it, it's, a, it's a case I would recommend to you on this issue of the interplay between contract language and the bond language and how to, to analyze consequential damages as well. All right, so uh, we're at 30 minutes, and, uh, and I'm out of cases, so we got to go ahead and close here. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, uh, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, January 10th, of course, at 1230 Eastern Time. Some events coming up, the next Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be on January 12th at Mangiano's in, uh, in Philadelphia. The ABA FSLC will be holding its annual midwinter meeting on January 19th through the 21st at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. If you haven't been, uh, Nashville is a great city. There's still time to sign up, I believe. Uh, our very own George Backrack, Rich Pledger, and Cindy Rogers-Ware will be in attendance, so say hi to them. So thank you to everyone uh, for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next year. And now I'll unmute the line, hopefully. Is now in talk mode. All right, so any questions, you know, related to what we talked about? Um, just general questions. If not, again, I wish everybody uh, happy holidays and a uh, happy, prosperous new year. Everybody take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.